When COVID-19 landed on our doorstep, we had to quickly get up to speed with new concepts, concepts that most of us had never heard of before, like modelling. A common approach to modelling is to give similar data and scenarios to different groups and see where they agree or differ. So we've been looking at two models about the historic glide path. So this is this effective reproductive ratio that we've been talking about. And it came down to this modelling data, whether we would be returning on-site to our workplaces, reopening bars and restaurants, or meeting up with our friends. On the modelling and on the evidence, the data and the analysis of all of that, we believe that we will be able to take, all things being equal, the next step, which is when all the restrictions leaving your home, when there's much more freedom of movement, we believe that we will be able to take that important step. Without seeing the data, many felt modelling was like a game of chance, as we anticipated the chance of an outbreak. The government's relying on some modelling at the moment that effectively models the chance of an outbreak given a number of cases. What those models do is also incorporate compliance with particular restrictions and, and settings for those restrictions. And as Burnett's Professor Mark Stuve hinted, the modelling had to shift with our change in behaviour and the more data that was collected. This led to a lot of public confusion. Oh, your models were wrong because all those cases and deaths didn't happen. Of course, just skipping over the fact that the models led to policy change that prevented them in the first place. Whether something may or may not happen has been a huge learning curve for all of us, including the scientists doing the modelling. You're taking a punt at what you think are going to be the important factors in the model of more than this number of people or less than this number of people going to the MCG for footy or not, community sport, being in a house or not. So what shows our modellers that there could be a 41% chance of a third wave within four weeks. How do they crunch the numbers? We don't look at just the average number of people. We actually look at the distribution of that. So if we think about social networks and how many friends we might have, it's a really long-tailed distribution. This is How Science Matters, a Bernard Institute podcast. I'm Tracy Parrish. Throughout this series, you'll meet some of Australia's visionary scientific thinkers. You'll find out what keeps them awake at night as they grapple with a pandemic and how science is playing a leading role in shaping our response. My co-host is Professor Brendan Crabb, head of the Burnett Institute, a microbiologist, malaria researcher and one of the best minds in infectious diseases and global health. Today, modelling COVID-19 can we predict the future? But if you're expecting modellers in white coats, think again. Here's what modelling actually involves from a scientific perspective. Yeah, definitely not a white coat. It involves a lot of, firstly, data analysis and understanding of the data. And really what models do is they can bring together all of the different pieces of data that you have, put them together in a cohesive way and use that to tell the story and to really understand what's going on. Hi, I'm Dr Nick Scott, the Head of Modelling and Biostatistics at the Burnett Institute. 
You understand the story, but I was wrong by a journalist who said, look, could we interview a modeler and what we'd like is to put them in front of a whiteboard and they can scribble the algorithms and they can show us how it's done. And other than saying, look, I think that's very 1975, I said that's not how it's done anymore. What do you think the public perception is of what modelers actually do? I'm not actually sure, but I can tell you what we do do. And it's a lot of computer-based work. So we set up our models on the computer. It involves writing code and sifting through data sets and incorporating them in the code. We also do a lot of maths. And so the code consists of series of equations that determine how people will behave in the population that we're modelling. I would have thought it's a pretty safe environment. Your mathematicians at heart and you're able to crunch large amounts of data and put things out and get wonderful publications. And then along comes COVID. And if it's not the most controversial area and most powerful area in managing the whole pandemic, it must be close to it. Firstly, on the controversy, has that taken you by surprise, just how triggered people seem to be by modelling outcomes? And why do you think that is? Well, it's been really interesting because for years before COVID, we would spend ages doing modelling and we would show people the models and really try and get people to pay attention to them. And we'd also go to quite a lot of lengths to get data to inform those models. And then when COVID hit, suddenly it flipped and everyone was demanding more modelling rather than saying, oh, we don't need modelling. Everyone suddenly wanted more. They wanted it faster. And it became the spotlight because it's such a useful tool. I think the benefit of it just became front and centre for everybody because you can run scenarios in the model to just test things before you do them in real life. You can ask what-if questions. It's really powerful for helping decision-making. It doesn't surprise me that in public health and policymakers that they suddenly go, oh, we need this. It has surprised me in the past that despite what I would say quality models, that they've ignored them. I should say on a certain level it surprised me. They've been allowed to ignore things which have been really high-quality science, but they go, oh, it's a model, whereas now they need it. That's Professor Margaret Hellard a deputy director at Burnett Institute. And that's the other bit that I always find fascinating is that people suddenly think they understand things that are much more nuanced because they think it's simple or easy when it's not. You're trying to turn the milieu of numbers and stuff and information into a clear narrative to provide guidance to policymakers. It's actually quite difficult. So is it fair to say you're trying to predict the future? You're trying to say in the future what are reasonable likely scenarios that will occur. I think of models as very much like life. You're trying to understand what future risk might be. We do it with our finances. We do it with the car we buy. We do it with the house we buy. We do it all the time in life, but don't realise we're doing it. We're trying to understand the likelihood of something occurring in the future and the risk around that. Models are just trying to do that in a more precise way. And for COVID, you're trying to understand future risk. A, B or C might happen. Even though A might be less likely to happen, if we get it wrong, like a lockdown or don't lockdown, and we get A, we're stonkered, it's constantly trying to get these things right in your mind. The degree of confidence we have that something may or may not happen has been a huge learning curve for all of us. But I think those in science generally live and breathe it, certainly comfortable with it. When you present something to a government or to a policymaker, 
you're giving a degree of confidence and that is actually the crucial bit. Do you think that's been well received and well understood? It's not so much we give a degree of confidence, but we give a lot of uncertainty around <laughs> things. And quite often the people in government or who we're working with, they'll want to know, so what's going to happen if we do this? And our answer will be, well, you've got a 10% chance of this or a some percent chance of this, and it's this wide range. And quite often they're looking for a single response. But of course, we know with COVID, we just need to look at the real world that anything can happen. You can have one person enter the community with an undiagnosed infection and nothing can come of it. Or you can have one person enter and everything can come of it. So the model needs to capture that, which means that our outcomes need to capture that uncertainty as well. So it's very wide. But that breadth of uncertainty is what concerns government because during the lockdown in Melbourne in 2020, there were daily press conferences. So a lot of the impact of COVID was shifting and they wanted some real answers and the public were getting really upset about some of the situations. How hard is that for you as a modeler to keep ahead to be able to help government? We kept framing it in a way that I think was useful, talking about the probability that strategies were going to be successful. And so there's a lot of different outcomes that can happen. And really, you can group a lot of them together and say, we don't want any of those. So let's just group them as bad outcomes. We've got one good outcome, which is COVID zero. Let's look at the probability that that will happen. And then let's look at it for the different options. So you've got different policy options which ones have the greatest probability of getting back to there. And that's the kind of information that can be used. I actually think governments, both our state and federal governments and others, have missed opportunities though about being really honest to the public and explaining the truth of going, actually, there are things we can't absolutely know, but what we are aiming for is this. And so it's on the balance of probability because we don't know for certain. So in the same way as when I'm talking to a patient, the thinking that one might do when a patient comes to see me as an individual, I go through with them what may be the scenarios. I always think we should be better at explaining our decision-making processes so the public goes, I know they can't tell me till two weeks' time whether we open or shut because they don't really know. It's not like their contact tracers don't know what they're doing. It's actually because of the way numbers work, they won't know yet. And in two weeks, they might not know, but they'll know more. I don't think we did that well. While modelling may sound like forecasting, it's strictly a numbers game and not understanding the figures can pose a huge risk. We've seen this play out in the community and in the media, with people grabbing onto one number and then later questioning why we never actually got to 20,000 deaths from COVID. Yeah, hasn't that happened a lot? Oh, your models were wrong because all those cases and deaths didn't happen. Of course, just skipping over the fact that the models led to policy change that prevented them in the first place. It's been a hard series for the community to follow. I've often had a discussion about what's the role of media and for them to actually take responsibility of explaining stuff properly rather than trying to gotcha people, as opposed to actually putting in some thoughtful effort to say, how do I appropriately explain to people what's going on? A really good journalist can try to understand it and explain it well to people so that they're not gotcha and understanding complexity to help 
people, particularly people who are vulnerable, marginalised, whichever ways we want to describe, so that they're less anxious. They just make them more anxious. And Nick, when you're presenting to government or to others, how much pushback is there on the numbers? They're generally accepted. And there's a relatively good understanding that the model outcomes are driven by the data that goes into them and the estimates that go into them. But in general, there's a bit of confusion in the public probably about the difference between forecasting and running scenario analyses. There's a lot of models out there that do forecast and what they try and do is just predict what the numbers are going to be tomorrow or next week or next month. And then there's a lot of models out there that are useful for policy. You can be in a situation where you've got 10 options available to you and so you run 10 different scenario analyses looking at what happens if we did any of these. And by definition, nine of them are going to be wrong in the sense that they won't match the data because that scenario never actually happened in the real world. It's just that the scenario they projected never actually happened. And so this was the case with all the early models that were saying we were going to have tens of thousands of deaths. And it's not that those models were wrong. It's just that they ran a scenario where we didn't do lockdowns and didn't have those responses. And that never happened, fortunately. Just on that scenario analysis, Victoria's second wave is coming to a very substantial second wave in this state. We're coming toward the end. The case numbers were getting very low and people were getting, understandably, very edgy about opening up. Been months in heavy lockdown in Melbourne. Cases were low. There's hardly any COVID around. And the pressure was on. The pressure from right at the top, this Prime Minister, the Treasurer and so on, saying, are you guys thinking about opening up? Those scenarios that you talked about, hey, if you open this, open that, how did that play out in Victoria's second wave and what it turned out to be a pretty smart move to keep the lockdowns going for a while? So we actually had that model quite early on, even coming out of the first wave. Nick and his team with IDM had developed the Cobasim model and we could see that you needed to come out slowly. But it was really early days. I can remember sending it off to a number of state governments to say, whatever you're doing, don't come out too fast. And this is where this likelihood happens, is you may get away with it, but the nature of this bug might mean that you might not get away with it. The reality is Victoria were unlucky or the others were lucky because somebody was possibly not going to get away with coming out as fast as we did across the country. During the second wave, there were lots of genuine decisions being made about how long do we need to hold on to this for because the case numbers were dropping. So being able to run projections where we looked at, well, what would happen if we released restrictions now compared to if we waited another week or another two weeks? Just seeing, firstly, how high the probability of a resurgence was for doing something early, I think scared a lot of people. And also seeing the benefits of holding on for extra time. And you do get a plateauing of benefits. So holding on for one more week, you can really reduce your risk. Two weeks, you're still reducing your risk. But there's a point where your risk is levelling out. It's not going much lower. And these are really good indicators for when to start doing things. And it can get quite granular, can't it? It can have X number of people in a venue rather than Y number of people in a venue and those sorts of things rather than just the binary lockdown or no lockdown. We spent quite a bit of time developing the detail in the model where we could implement these micro policies, so changes that would happen in very specific settings, things like the density limits in cafes and restaurants and bars, 
community sports, things that happen on public transport, working from home, all of these little changes so that we could actually capture the kinds of decisions that were being made by the government. What the modellers have shown us is that we're all part of a complex web of human connectivity and how we behave in each situation changes the COVID goalposts. While we might hug and kiss at a wedding for 100 people, we probably won't do that in another venue, even with similar numbers. So how does our collective behaviour appear in the modeller's playbook? And that's where, say, when we were initially setting up the original model, where you're going, what do we think will be the critical scenarios and trying to work out what's going to be important. And you don't know what's going to necessarily be important. You're taking a punt at what you think are going to be the important sort of factors in the model of more than this number of people or less than this number of people going to the MCG for footy or not, community sport, being in a house or not. And then something changes where you actually get some real data and you go, okay, household transmission is actually probably more important than we might have originally thought. We ramp that up, but transmission over there is less important than we thought. We'll dial that down. Also, one of the things that we were trying to do is say, how many contacts do we all have with each other and over what period of time? What's average? When you look for true contact data, hardly any is there. We have to use data from studies 10 years ago. But now we can use more recent data from our own work because we set up studies to actually inform the models. But it's really quite a complex business, the initial setting up, and then the constant sort of trying to adjust. You talked about the model and how you have to model certain scenarios. How much of a cultural lens do you apply to the behavioural differences between people and how they gather and what their general socialisation is like? Yeah, we simulate individual people in the model and that allows us quite a bit of flexibility because it means that each person in the model can have their own characteristics. And we don't look at just the average number of contacts that someone has. We actually look at the distribution of that. So if we think about social networks and how many friends we might have, it's a really long-tailed distribution. So there's a lot of people that might have a small number of close friends that they come in contact with all the time. And then there's groups of people that would just come in contact with hundreds of people. And in the model, we can allocate those characteristics to individual people. And what that means is that whenever we run the model, sometimes if you introduce new cases, you can get lucky and the first person who gets infected just has a few contacts or you can get really unlucky and the first couple of people who get infected have large number of contacts. And so we get these distributions and we allocate it across the whole population. So you have to make sure you've got a broad reach culturally across that data. Yeah, that's right. And some of it's shown in the population level averages. So if we look at a lot of the transmissions, we need to calibrate the model to make sure that it produces what we've already observed. And so we do need to make sure that it's reliable in that sense. With the vaccine rollout marching ahead in some parts of the world, there's a renewed sense of hope that the world may be inching closer towards COVID normal. Well, at least for some. So what does this mean for the future of the model in the next couple of years? Will it be used differently? I think it will change, but it'll still be used to guide 
the sorts of policy decisions that we'll face. And in Australia, I think it's unlikely that we'll reach a herd immunity for COVID with a vaccine. And so I think we need to be thinking about what we can complement that vaccination coverage with. And so using the model to answer those kinds of questions, I think is going to have some implications. The other thing we're doing a lot more work of is work overseas, particularly in low and middle income countries. And I think it's going to be ongoing for a long time. In some of these settings, we're adapting the model so that it can simulate multiple strains at the same time and the way they interact with one another. There's different immunities to the different strains through the different vaccines. And in a lot of countries, they've got three or four different types of vaccines. So it's a lot more complex doing that work. And because the vaccine rollouts are going to take a while and the virus will keep getting into those countries, I think there's going to be a lot more to do there. So we don't reach herd immunity, which I take to mean we're not just going to reach a point of vaccination coverage where we can go back to normal, set and forget. So if that's the case, which I agree is a likely scenario, what does that mean? We don't want borders shut forever. We don't want the threats of lockdowns if we can help it. How does modelling help us manage that post-heavy vaccine but not magic for shield time? The vaccines are not going to cut the mustard. I must confess when I looked at that model first, I can remember just looking at it thinking, I hope I'm not reading this, but unfortunately I was, that we are not going to get there alone with vaccines. So in my view, we have a series of steps we have to do. We have to, number one, explain to the public that situation so that people understand that even when they're vaccinated, that we will need to have public health responses. That includes them getting tested when they're symptomatic. It includes them quarantining themselves. If we get to a good level of vaccination, the lockdowns may not have to happen at all or very often if we have a high level of vaccination. But questions like, do we want just light restrictions being held or do you go in and out of things? They're partly decisions for government because it's what's good for business. So you're better off having certainty with a low level of restriction ongoing or do you say, look, we can hold it for this long and then it needs to come in at a higher level. I loathe the word but socialise the community that this is going to be happening for the next one, two, possibly three years. Second, we do need to really have what I would classify as really sophisticated thinking around what we're doing with our border control with COVID because if we constantly have people coming in from overseas, Australian residents or people for workforce, which is required, we did a work in mid-2020, late-2020 called the Track Study where we looked at this. It's an economic imperative for Australia that we have people coming to work. We know that. So then you need to think, how do we open the borders in a way that's not seeding in cases constantly because the model says you're stonkered if you do that, no matter what level of vaccine. Then can we have things like if you're vaccinated and you're a returning resident, going into your own home where all of the family is vaccinated, if the community is 60% vaccinated, can you actually home quarantine and only be there for a week? Or does it need to be two? But can you be at home with really low risk of seeding into the community is a question that needs to be asked. If I'm coming from a country like a New Zealand bubble because they've been vaccinated, how long do I need to quarantine if I'm a worker coming in from the Pacific can I get away with five days in a purpose-built quarantine? These are things we need to set our minds to sorting out so that we can have a really clear policy and we can have more people returning. And then finally, we have to help 
vaccinate our region and other countries so that they get to a level where COVID prevalence, the proportion of people with disease in their communities is so low that the risk becomes much less. Vaccines have been developed in record time and there's a record amount of them. And of course, the wealthier countries who did the development or who can afford to buy them are doing almost all of the vaccinating. At the same time, we have a raging epidemic going on in low and middle income countries. Are we doing things around the wrong way by vaccinating ourselves first and effectively letting the pandemic run wild, even from a self-interest point of view? We've been able to, with a whole lot of diseases, put it over in a corner with rare exception. We don't have to worry about malaria because malaria doesn't fuss us, so we don't even have to invest in the vaccine. We don't have to worry about that disease over there because we're juicy fruit right. No problems for us. And COVID's giving us our global comeuppance that if we ignore things beyond our borders, or if we ignore communities within our country who are really marginalised, well, it comes back to bite us because we can't put them over in a corner anymore. So it's a really interesting philosophical place where we've got ourselves. And I actually think it's really good for us. A whole lot of us are realising you can't just leave low and middle income countries across there in the corner and buy roses cheap or get cheap labour or get cheap shoes and just say, do whatever you like over there. If we don't do something now, we're stonkered ourselves for ages. We probably haven't modelled it fully, but I would have just thought it has to be both. We're so used to putting ourselves first and then leaving scraps for second or saying, we'll take from you what benefits us and you'll get a benefit from it and you'll get the trickle down or the whatever affects the economic thing of the day. But the reality is, if we don't do it now, hard and fast, and help build their systems, because we know it is not just giving them a vaccine, good on you go deliver your vaccines, 20 million, let's drop them in a country. If you don't have health systems, oh, pity we didn't help them do that over the last 20 years. They won't deliver the vaccines in a timely way to those places. So we are getting our global comeuppance. And we need to take our medicine, in my view, and start building health systems in low and middle income countries and help them get everybody vaccinated. What we've seen in Australia and all around the world is how much problems the Delta variant of the virus is causing. In Australia, it's escaping quarantine more frequently than anything else. It's causing lockdowns. Overseas, it's causing all kinds of chaos. And it emerged from a country where the world hadn't chipped in yet to vaccinate. So in a lot of these countries, if we don't get the vaccination rates up, a new variant will emerge and it will cause just as much trouble for the rest of us. We need to focus on all countries in need, but that doesn't mean we can drop the ball in our own backyard. So what's it going to take for us to feel confident going about our daily lives? What sort of measures are the models suggesting we embrace? Is there some things that are really shining through that are going to be a crucial part of our post-opening, in inverted commas, world, or do we still have to do those hard yards? This is where modelling groups work really well with other public health teams. So we can work with public health teams to get a series of options on the table. What would be feasible things that we could live with, restriction-wise or combinations? It might be that we need to maintain ongoing really light restrictions that could be in the form of wearing masks or optional working from home, just maintaining that. It might be that we're not prepared to do that on a full-time basis. 
And then there's this trade-off between do we want to have lighter restrictions in place for longer or harder restrictions in place for shorter? These are questions not for the modelers, but what we can do is we can say how long we think they'd need to be in place for, how many times we think you'd need to change your settings over the course of 12 months and provide that to people and just see these are your options, which one do you prefer? But in the same way as the government might bring business together to say how do we improve vaccine rollout or bring people together, my argument would be that's the thing that you put to business so that rather than me or Nick or you or government saying it, my question to the restaurant business or the hospitality business or the tourism business is would you prefer option A, very light restrictions where you're just wearing a mask like Nick said or you're not having people come into the office, but does the city die? Actually, we don't like that. Melbourne City or Sydney, nobody's in the offices. No, that's not actually what we want as the option. We don't like your nobody come to the office thing. Okay, well, your other option is this. You might need to, in your bars and restaurants, have density limits. Actually, for me as the hospitality industry, I don't want that. Well, then nobody's going to be on your bar on Friday night or Thursday either. These are conversations that they will know far better than us what they think is the trade-off and the community will know far better than us what they want to trade off. That's where it has to be a conversation amongst others, not us. We're just about to do that with a whole bunch of people from culturally and linguistically diverse communities. What do you reckon to get their input into it? By not being transparent, it puts unnecessary pressure on the politicians as well. If they can explain early and show early these are the options that would work, we're having conversations about which ones to take, the public can understand that there's no certainty in COVID and they're difficult decisions, they're genuinely difficult decisions and this is their rationale for making them. I think the lack of trust in the public's ability to understand what's going on, vacuum, chasm, call it whatever you like, the public really does understand that it's uncertain and they just want a conversation about that uncertainty and they want transparency around the conversation on uncertainty. That's the feedback we get all of the time. With so much confusion and so much uncertainty, why don't we have a modeler who's the communications go-to for the government and for the rest of us? Someone who can explain well what the data is showing and what it all means. Alan Ching, who was the Deputy Chief Health Officer, is an excellent modeler and an excellent communicator in my view. He was in Victoria, but there's other similar people nationally as well. What you have to be super careful of, and this is what I would say, is that that modeler doesn't just talk about their own work. There are countless different types of models. And the really useful thing about models is people go, oh, but that model's different to that, but only at the edges. They've mostly been very much marching in step with a few admirable outliers or non-admirable outliers. So what you need is somebody who can have that conversation but doesn't necessarily have a vested interest in their own model that really is happy to talk about when we bring all of this information together, this is the model for now and this is a different type of model for another time because there's different styles of modelling. But it's really important to understand different models have different strengths to be used at different moments. We've seen vaccinologists, we've seen epidemiologists, they're all becoming these rising stars of science in communication and helping demystify some of the concerns about COVID. We're not seeing that with modellers, though. Not to the same extent. It'd be great to see more, and it'd be great to see more communication of the details of modelling through the media to people, particularly people who are 
studying, maybe they're at university, not sure what they want to do, just to acknowledge that it's an active field that is great to get into. How did you get into it? I believe you were in the transport industry originally, same as Jerome Weimar. So I spent a little bit of time doing rail transport models, but I guess I got into maths and modelling as a, a sort of a cheating way out at school. I always liked it over English and some of the other subjects because you could just put down the right answer and leave early. And that really appealed to me. The work he's done on hepatitis C elimination has had global impact. Same with hepatitis B and vaccination globally. So COVID's just another part of the work that Nick and his team has done. At the moment, it's having national influence, but his other work has had global influence. More and more in Australian health and medical research world, and also in the global health world, it's fascinating to see people and disciplines really prominent that didn't start out like you, Margaret, with a medical degree or like me with a biomedical science degree. They are computer scientists or they are mathematicians or they are chemists or they are physicists contributing to a health-related problem because they've all come together now in solutions. And mathematics and modelling seems to be a classical example of that. Sorry, if you like maths, but you also want to have a massive impact on health and humanity and those things, then modelling is a really clear place to take your energy and your skills because maths and modelling leads to massive impact in big decisions being made about ways forward for health in all sorts of areas. Nick, you seem like a pretty chilled dude, actually, but does anything keep you up at night? In general, no. I think it's great to be doing what I do. We only employ people that sleep well. (laughs) Margaret and Nick are behind the Victorian adaptation of the Covisum epidemic model, which was first developed by the Institute for Disease Modelling in the US. How Science Matters was produced by Written and Recorded. This is a Burnett Institute podcast. For over 30 years, we've been at the forefront of infectious disease research, public health and national health security. COVID-19 is a complex global health challenge. So join us in the fight against the pandemic and help us remind everyone how science matters. If you liked this episode, catch Brendan and I for the next one. Lost Voice, COVID's impact on eliminating malaria. To hear more, search for How Science Matters on the Bernard Institute website or wherever you get your podcasts. And please share this episode with two friends or more. If they're new to podcasts, show them how to follow our show. We want this podcast to spread like a virus, but in a good way. I'm Tracy Parrish. See you next time. This podcast series was recorded during June and July 2021. In this evolving pandemic, please search for the latest official coronavirus advice in your area.